Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, celebration. How are you doing this morning? morning. Everybody have worshipped already. Amen. You prepared to worship through the hearing of God's word. And I'm going to tell you, I'm going to challenge you, and I understand exactly what Brother Mike said last week. Man, you want the message to be encouraging, but sometimes you can hear a message like this and leave absolutely discouraged. I also can identify with what he said about as you study this material, how it rakes you over the coal personally as you prepare to proclaim it. So what you see here is an imperfect person saved by the grace of God, just striving to do things to honor and glorify him. But I make a lot of mistakes along the way. Do I have a witness this morning? I hear laughter. I'll take that as an amen. That's what the Greek, uh, that's how that laughter translates in Greek. Okay, well, this morning we're looking at the text, primarily verses 20 through 26. But really what I want to do for those that maybe were not here last week is I think we really, to kind of capture where we're going this morning, capture really what Brother Mike shared with us last week as James is presenting this idea in verse 14. He asks the question, what use is it, my brother, for someone to say that he has faith and he has no works? You can see already uh, James is not buying into this easy believism. But, you know, throughout the passage, throughout 14 through 26, I just want to share some answers he gives without giving the supporting document because I want to tell you where he is trying to lead us. He asks a question, what use is it, my brethren, if one someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Look at verse 17. He says, even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. Look at verse 22. He says, you see that faith is working with his works, talking about Abraham, and as a result, the works, faith was perfected. Of the works, faith was perfected. Look at verse 24. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And then he concludes in verse 26, for just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. So he enters into this whole conversation about faith and works, but he answers it at several points while he's trying to support that. Uh, last week, Brother Mike shared with us, and, 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 it, and he shared that if you look at this initially, you might say, wow, it just seems like Paul and James are on different wavelengths here. You know, Paul said it has nothing to do with works. Matter of fact, we will cling to that verse and thank God for that verse, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, what it says, for by grace are you saved through faith, and it's not of yourselves it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So Paul is saying salvation comes to us as an act of grace imparted by our faith in, what, in Jesus Christ. So there is salvation, but James seems to be saying, no, 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 it's faith and works. And it can kind of kind of lead us in a tight tailspin until we really look um, at the audience that both are talking to. And also, even within James himself, even though he's introducing this idea of faith and works being justified, he didn't mean that you also have to contribute to your salvation. He says that in chapter 1. Go back to chapter 1, verse 21. Let's just kind of read through what James is saying in verse 1, chapter 21. He says, Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. You know what put aside sounds like to me? Repentance. Repent from all filthiness and wickedness, and in humility receive the word implanted, which is what? Able to save your souls. So we see here James even believes it's, 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 it's the, the, the word being implanted in our souls that ultimately what saves us. But what James goes on to say in verse 22, but prove yourselves doers of the word and not mere, hearly, near, near, merely hearers who delude themselves. 
So right here, James saying, put away wickedness, repent of that, allow the Word to, be, to transform your life, and as a result of that, you're going to be a new creature. You're going to desire to do good works. Well, now, did Paul buy into that? Did Paul believe that? I shared with you Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, by grace you're saved through faith, as not of works, lest any man should boast. But so often we kind of leave off verse 10. And you know what verse 10 says? You are his workmanship, created unto Christ Jesus, unto what? You remember that verse? What does it say? Unto good works. So even Paul believed, as, an, as we express faith in God and we receive his grace unto salvation, it should do such a radical work in our life that we are completely a different creature. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have come new. And as a result, we'll understand our place in the kingdom of God and that we'll realize that we're now his workmanship created unto Christ Jesus, unto good works that he foreordained that we should walk with him. So if we look at these two passages, because Paul and James are on the same sheet of music, aren't they? Paul was arguing to a different audience, as our pastor shared last week. There were those that said, you know, if I can obey the law, if I can keep myself clean... I can somehow work myself to heaven. And, and, and Paul would say, no, no. It's not about your works. It's about God's grace. Well, James looks at it from the other perspective. If you claim to be a Christian, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, then it should look like it. You should be doing those things that Jesus did. Is that hard to understand? It's not difficult to understand, is it? If we truly believe that Christ invades our life and a transformation occurs, old things, all our sin has been pardoned, and we've been given new life in Jesus Christ, there is an eternal debt we feel we owe to God. God, I want this life to mean something for your sake. I want this life to, 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 to reflect very much your glory and your grace and part of the me. I want to make a difference in the lives of others because of the difference you've made in me. Got an illustration for you. Isn't that what Brother Mike preached last week? Okay, never mind. Let's work on my illustration. Now, I did try this on two people that remain nameless, Mike Harmon and Chris Oglesby. I want you to look at this. Now, don't think too hard. I know this is a celebration. I know you're deep theologically. You're already thinking for the underlying meaning. Assuming this was the correct size that a dollar bill should be, assuming it was the correct color, assuming everything is right here, would you agree that this would have value? Thank you, brother. Amen. You're an answer to prayer. It has a value of what? One dollar. Right here. If this was all the correct size and the correct color and everything, it has value, right? Let me ask you this. Hey, does this have value? Don't read too much into it. Same dollar bill. Does it have value? Amen. Thank you, brother. Yes. Well, let me ask you something. Does this change things? It does. All of a sudden, what appeared to be worth $1, when you look to the other side, is now useless, isn't it? Can you imagine if this was the correct size and correct color, and I went there, and goodness gracious, don't they, they, they criticize money anymore? You feel like a criminal when you give somebody a 20 or they do that just to me. You know, they, they mark it with stuff. They look at it, and it's kind of scary for a while. But yeah, because the backside is removed, this now simply comes a piece of paper, a piece of trash. Now, I want you to think about what Paul or what James is saying here about faith and works. To spout that you have this great faith and belief in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, 
but nobody can recognize it by viewing your life externally. There's no good works. There's no desire to, to share the gospel. There's no desire to go to New York. There's no desire to go to the other side of the world in various locations to preach the gospel. There's no desire to feed the hungry and clothe the naked in our community. There's no desire to go to Jacksonville uh, to work with uh, immigrants that are coming in our country. I'm fearful. There's something missing. And James is saying that very same thing. Something's missing. Now, if you've been at this church very long, you understand that we do not buy into easy believism. We do not buy into, well, there was a time a long time ago I said that prayer, they dumped me in water, and somebody told me that I was good for eternity. But now I am free to live life as I want to. You know, Mike kind of mentioned this word this morning. It really captured me. It really fits here. There are a lot of people that have a grip on the gospel. There's a lot of people that have a grip on the gospel. I can explain to you everything the scripture says about the gospel of Jesus Christ. The difference is the gospel doesn't have a grip on them. And I'm going to tell you, that is monumental. That is incredible. To be able to quote from scripture, to be able to explain the Christian faith uh, very elegantly to, to anybody that would listen, it is okay. But it is a world of difference that maybe you don't know everything you should know about scripture and you've tried to search the riches of his grace and mercy and you find yourself coming up uh, uh, short and fully understanding it and this burdens you the gospel has gripped you but you know that this truth that has set you free is true for others and it's your passion and your desire to make it known to as many that will listen through acts of works and through the proclamation of the gospel the gospel has gripped you now i know and brother mike shared this last week and even as I studied this week, this is going to be discouraging for many. You're going to be like Schindler's List, right? You remember that movie? I tried to watch it at four or five different occasions, and I think I got a basic idea of the movie, but I find myself kind of falling asleep. Forgive me if you love that movie, but it's just true. But you do remember one part. You know, he was the guy that was able to hide a lot of Jews and protect them from death in his camp. Please tell me I'm right so I, didn't, I got the basic flow of the movie. But there was a burden at the end. I, you know, I could have sold this. I could have done that. I could, I could have saved two more lives if I would have done this. That's the burden that we carry with the gospel. And you may leave here discouraged this morning thinking that same way. You know, I'm just not doing enough. Yes, I go on Monday nights and I try to feed the homeless. Yes, I share the gospel. But there's got to be more. Let me share with you and encourage you this morning. The gospel has gripped you. The gospel has gripped you. There's always this tension. Even as I was studying this week, God, I, I'm just not doing enough. And I'm not trying to work at my salvation. I'm trying to make my salvation work through me. I'm trying to reflect the glory of God with those I come in contact with, with those I share with, with those God has given me the opportunity to minister to. Because the gospel's gripped me. And church, in Southern Baptist culture, I can say this because I was raised here, this is, a, this, is a, this, this is tough. Because for so long we've kind of bought into this as long as I say a prayer. But the Christian life is so much more than that. A saving faith must be greater than just simple belief in God. Look at verse 19. James says, You believe that God is one, you do well. But the demons also believe and they shudder. So if you had this belief in God, that, that's good. But you need to understand that the adversaries to our God believe in him. It must move us further. 
James' desire that God illuminate our heart this morning with the understanding of what true biblical faith looks like. And I say look like, look at verse 20. He says, but are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow? Just stop right there. You're willing to recognize. Are you willing to recognize? Some translations say, are you willing to learn? Are you willing to be shown that faith without works is useless? And he addresses him as a foolish man, which sounds derogatory, but really what he's saying, are you willing to learn one who is without understanding? One who is without understanding of what the gospel is really all about and what the claims of Christ has on those who follow him are. Are you willing to learn? Are you willing to recognize? Are you willing to allow this to impact your life? Verse 20. Look at this passage. Last week, as Brother Mike shared, James is telling us and arguing that faith without works is dead. James is going to do like any preacher does now. He says, let's look at Scripture. Let's just look at what Scripture says. And I think what we're going to find out as we look through, to, because really all the sermon this week is is illustration to let you know that, hey, there's nothing new here. There's nothing new here. Biblical faith has always been this way. And he is bringing to our attention the life of Abraham and the harlot Rahab to demonstrate that, it, that faith, that saving faith, that biblical faith has always been about trusting God enough to step out in ways that honor him and work and impact the lives of those around you. It's always been that way. You remember even 1 John when he said, the new commandment I give you, but it's not really a new commandment, it's an old commandment. You love one another. Keeps us in reminding that God's ways hasn't changed. This is the way it has always been. So as we look at these following verses, I want you to keep that in mind that we talk about biblical faith is not anything new. James is just reminding us after he has led us through uh, what faith and works should look like that this is nothing new. This is just the way it's always been. And in verse 21, he starts out, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his own son, on the altar? I think it's very interesting in verse 21, the very first part of it, where he says, Was not Abraham our father? And just stop there. Assuming the audience is the 12 tribes that are scattered, Messianic Jews that have departed, and, and, and you can see from verse 1, they're all over now. He's writing to them. Would they have not understood who Abraham was just by saying, was not Abraham justified by works? It's very interesting, I think, that James includes, was not Abraham our father? Very significant here, I believe. I don't think it was just a, a slip of the pen. I believe every word that was penned here was by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So there is a reason that, that, that James is bringing in Abraham, our father, into the equation. Why? Taken by itself, it's unimportant. But within the context of James, it's very important. Because James is arguing, you have faith in God, it's going to radically transform you, and you're going to work for him. You're going to do works that bring honor and glory to him. And we actually see this discussion about Abraham as our father and who is Abraham, who, who are Abraham's descendants, even argued out through Scripture. Are you willing to turn to the Gospels this morning? And all God's people said, Amen. all right, Matthew chapter 3. Let's go to Matthew chapter 3 very quickly. And remember, we're trying to search the Scriptures for some discussion about who are the descendants of Abraham. Who are the rightful who, who is able to call Abraham our father as James is using it here in faith and works? 
Matthew chapter 3, verses 7 through 10, says this, talking about John the Baptist. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees, Jews, coming for baptism, he said to these, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Let your life reflect through the works that you do that you are a person living a life that has repented of evil. Let's go on. Verse 9. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. The axe is already laid at the root of the tree. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into fire. How offensive this must have been to the Pharisees and Sadducees. Guys, I'm going to tell you, if you were looking during that time for somebody who was living a righteous life, a holy life, it would be the Pharisees. If you're in doubt, just ask them. They'll tell you, hey, we're holy, and keep your distance because I'm pretty sure you're unclean. You might cause me to be unclean. So in their mind, of course we are descendants of Abraham. We are the children of promise. But John the Baptist has a simple question. Where are your works? Where is your life story that reflects a life living in repentance of sin and belief, true belief, true faith in God? Oh, you say you have Abraham to your father? Listen, Abraham can make stones come up as his descendants. Must have been shocking to them. Let's go on. John chapter 8, verse 31 through 39, just a, a few gospels over. John chapter 8, verse 31 through 59. Read it later. We're just going to do through 40. 31 through 40. So Jesus was saying to the Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Hang in there. We're going to get there. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me, because of my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you heard from your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, do what? The deeds of Abraham, the works of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God, this Abraham did not do. Even Jesus is drawing a line saying, you say you're descendants of Abraham. If you're descendants of Abraham, you'll be identified by what? You'd be doing the works of Abraham. You'd be doing the deeds of Abraham, but yet you're out to destroy me. Abraham would have never done that. So it seems that Jesus is kind of building a wedge. It's not that you are a DNA Jew, that you are a natural descendant of Abraham. There's a bigger picture. There is a lineage of faith here that works it and fleshes itself out in our daily lives. Who are the descendants of Abraham? If you're here this morning, you've repented of your sin and you turn your faith believing in Jesus Christ and you're allowing the gospel to grip you in such a way that you're trying to impact your world for the cause of the gospel then you are Abraham's descendants. Let's read on. 
Romans verse chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. A very shocking thing if you grew up religiously as a Jew. Now, I'm really not going to read verses 1 through 5 for the sake of time, but what Paul is essentially saying, you know, I would even count myself lost if Israel would just come to faith in Jesus Christ. I have such a burden for them. But then he goes on to verse 6. But it's not though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are all they children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise are regarded as descendants. So you see there is that lineage of faith. And this would have been horribly offensive to the Jew who said, you know what? I am a physical descendant of Abraham. God has entrusted with us the law of God. I even know the law of God. Matter of fact, I have tacked on a whole bunch of extra laws to make sure I fulfill the law of God. In other words, I'm going to follow oral tradition. What traditionally is said I should do to be a good Jew, then that's what I'm going to do. Well, guess what? We have the temple. There is great confidence in observing religious festivals. Now listen to me this morning. Great confidence. I'm doing all the right things. I'm going to the festivals. Uh, I'm observing all the traditions. I'm following the oral law. I had this hope for the Messiah. I don't necessarily see him the hope for the entire world. We see that work itself out in Acts. But it certainly is our hope. He's going to restore the kingdom of David. What Jesus and John the Baptist and even Paul here in Romans would have been shocking to them. It would have stunned them. What do you mean? Are you trying to say we're not? Jesus said, if you're Abraham's descendants, then you'd be doing the works or the deeds of Abraham. No genetic connection. It's by simply trusting God and faithful service demonstrated to him through our works. That affirms our faith in Christ. If I believe in something, truly have faith in it, then it's going to lead me to have exercise trust in that thing. And though I may not be able to see the end, I trust the one word about how to get to the end. Does that make sense? Can we see what James is kind of talking about here? Think about this in our application today. Now, now, now I, want you, I don't want you to lose what I had kind of said about the Jews at the time of Jesus. They were relatively proud. Hey, I'm a descendant of Abraham. I have the law. I'm even going above the law because I'm following what all the oral traditions are. I go to church every Saturday, right? I honor the Sabbath. I, I do all these things. And I really want to kind of move it to our culture and, and tell me maybe some of these things you may have heard and see if it kind of identifies with those that Jesus said, you're not Abraham's descendants. Let me say this. I live in America. We are a Christian nation. Of course I'm a Christian. Are we a Christian nation? Hey, debatable, right? But most believe that we're a Christian nation. So by the simple fact of being born in this country, I'm a Christian. Hallelujah. Now, I'm going to rob banks and steal and lie to you and cheat on my wife, but hey, I'm still a Christian. Why? I'll add to you. You don't, you're not convinced of that? Well, guess what? When I was five, they told me I, I said a prayer and I was dunked in the tub and I was forever saved. Now, I'm still living like the devil, but you know what? I'm not only on top of American, I'm born American, I was dunked in a tub. 
I said some words. I attend church. Mostly on Easter and Christmas, but don't, hey, I go to church. Let me ask you this. If, if that's what I am telling you, based on your understanding of the gospel, does it sound like any transformation has occurred? Where, where is my confidence in my nationality? This is a Christian nation. In, in what I did, I said a prayer. I even did a baptism. That's enough. I even go to church. I observe religious traditions. If that's the extent, friends, I would never tell you you're lost or saved. I would not tell you that. But listen, as a pastor, let me share with you, I am deeply concerned based on what has revealed in Scripture. You may have a grip on the gospel. You can do the, hey, listen, I was an ace when I was in fifth grade in Sunday school. The answers were always Jesus, the Bible, church. Give me three chances, I'll get the right answer. Who loves us? Jesus. How are we saved? The church, huh? No, Jesus. Jesus. I get those three answers, and I'm going to tell you, I think we're very educated as far as what the gospel message says. But I keep coming back to the gospel says something grips us. Something radically changes us. Doesn't Paul say in Corinthians, old things have passed away? Behold, all things have become new. Doesn't the Bible teach us that in Christ there is something new about us? That even when we contemplate our sin, when we try to bring it up before God, God says, what sin, my son? What sin, my daughter? To know what I have been forgiven from. To know the love that was displayed on the cross of Calvary for me. When that grips me, it causes me to want to change. It causes me to want to love the one who loved me so much. What's the scripture say? I love because why? He first loved me. It's about being gripped by the gospel. There could be no saving faith apart from repentance of sin and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and follow him in the direction of whatever works he calls you to do. Do you believe this morning that he saves us and he calls us? A or B? A, he calls us and sits us. Or he calls us and sends us. A or B, church? With a great confidence. B! <laughs> That's right. Well, let's move on. True biblical faith. Not only is it part of our heritage in Abraham, but it truly has not changed. Let's kind of read 21, uh, uh, back to James chapter 21. Uh, chapter 2 verse 21 through 26 and kind of get it because again James is taking us back to scripture after he has stated this thing about faith and works he's carrying us back to scripture was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his own son on the altar you see that faith was working with his works and as a result of the works faith was perfected or complete and the scripture was fulfilled which says and Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. And he concludes with this, For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works 
is dead also. Now, I want to kind of look at the life of Abraham. He starts off, he says, Was not Abraham justified when he offered up Isaac on the altar? And then he goes on and he quotes Old Testament scriptures, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So really we kind of got to look at Abraham's life to understand this as a whole as it relates to Isaac, the one that was ultimately offered uh, on the altar to God at God's request. You know, we just can't leave there. We kind of got to back up. So what I want to do is I want to kind of back up in the Old Testament. Y'all don't mind thumbing through Scripture just for a few moments this morning, right? We're going to back up to Genesis chapter 12, and we're only going to try to capture the parts of Abraham's life that, that, that ties in with ultimately Isaac being given, offered up as a sacrifice. Genesis chapter 12. That would be the book preceding Exodus. That was a funny... Also, the book following the table of contents. Genesis chapter 12. A beautiful picture here. The world is a wreck. And God says, I'm going to continue my promises from Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to bring about this seed that will one day bruise the heel of the serpent. Or excuse me, bruise that seed. But that seed is ultimately going to crush the serpent's head. We see the beginning of that here in Genesis chapter 12. And I can't help but read this. God invades Abraham's life enters into Abram's life. And I want you to understand Abram, 75 years old at this point. His name means exalted father. Abram means exalted father. He is 75 years old and has not have a, does not have a child to his name. Now I want you to let that kind of settle a little bit how embarrassing that must have been. Hey, there's Abram. Hey, Abram. Exalted father. He doesn't even have a child. He... I just can't imagine how that must have been to have a name Exalted Father and not have a childy name. Hello, Exalted Father, where are your children? Um, I don't have any. Anyway, just, just extra credit. wasn't even in notes. You got that for free this morning. They, uh, Genesis chapter 12, it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the ones who curse you I will curse. And listen to this, this is important. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Here God speaks. God commands. What does Abraham do as an act of faith? Look at verse 4. So Abraham went. All he had to go on was what? The word of God. But yet he stepped out in faith. But I wanna, want your attention to capture the latter part of verse 3 where it says, In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is a continuation from the promise right after the fall that God was going to provide a seed that was one day going to undo the works of the devil. So let's go on. And I say there's a lot we can look at Abraham's life, but I just want to kind of uh, keep this in front of us. Just turn the page of chapter 13, verses 14 through 16. It says, The Lord said to Abraham and Lot after they separated, Now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land which you see I will give to you and to your descendants forever. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can count the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. There's this great promise. Abraham still has no child. He still has no child. But he says, look at the stars, and look at the sands of the sea. If you can count those, then they'll be able to count your descendants. Now, I don't know about you, but if it was me, I'd be thinking, Lord, it's been a few years. You, you've made this promise, and it's been a few years, you know, but what do we see? Abraham consistently trusting and believing God. Let's go to the next account, chapter 15. Now, 
this is part of the covenant, but I really only want to read verses 4 through 6 as it pertains to what we're talking about, uh, Isaac and Abraham's faith demonstrated in his works. And matter of fact, this verse is what James is actually recalling to support uh, his faith works idea. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this man will not be your heir. Talking about his um, Eleazar, one of his lead servants. This man will not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body. He shall be your heir. And God took, he took him outside and said, now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Then it says, Abraham believed in the Lord and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, an act of faith. God, I'm not going to go here, there. I'm going to believe you. I'm going to hang on to every word you have to say. Well, it goes on. Isaac is eventually born. And um, chapter 22, something amazing happens. Is everybody staying with me on this? I'm actually going to tie this in hopefully in a few moments. But I wanted you to see the Abraham's life in regards to his faith and how it worked out in his life. He finally has a child. Isaac is finally born. And uh, he uh, grows up. Uh, just a young boy now, and God does something amazing in chapter 22. We're not going to read it all, but let me tell you about it. God says, I want to take your only son, Isaac, Abraham, and I want you to offer him to me as a sacrifice. Wow. Wow. God, I have waited 25 years since you promised this descendant. I finally have him, have enjoyed his company just looking forward to all that's going to transpire as you multiply him and he becomes as the sand of the seashore. And now you're asking me to kill him? You kind of meditate on that for a while. Put yourself in Abraham's shoes. I, Lord, I must be misunderstanding you. Kind of like, you know, when we have a neighbor that moves in a couple houses down and the Holy Spirit says, you know, you need to go to introduce yourself to them. Maybe invite them over dinner, get to know them well, share the gospel with them. Lord, let's let them settle in a little while, you know, say 15, 20 years. And then if I cross them on the street, you know, maybe you'll empower me to share the gospel then. It, but it's greater than that because you're talking about your only child, your firstborn child, and God has now told you to sacrifice. But you know what Abraham, ha or what Abraham has? He has God's promise. He has God's promise that Isaac will be his heir. As a matter of fact, this confidence, this faith in God is really demonstrated in the Word of God. Chapter 22, it talks about God calling Abraham to go sacrifice Isaac. But look in verse 5. Abraham said to his young men, those who kind of helped him get there, stay here with the donkeys, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship, and we'll return to you. I'm confused. God said, Isaac, or, or Abraham, go sacrifice Isaac. But before they depart, he tells the guys, help them. Guys, you sit here and you mind the mules, keep them in order. My boy and I are going to go over here and worship for a while, and then we will return to you. Contradiction here. God said, go sacrifice. But Abraham's telling the boys, hey, we'll be back in just a minute. We're going to go worship. Abraham was trusting in the promise of God. But God asked for his son. Did Abraham know all how this was going to transpire? I do not believe he did. I didn't know how it was going to transpire. But he did trust the promise of God that God 
was going to spare Isaac somehow because he was the promised descendant. You know, Paul really kind of brings this out, or actually not Paul, the writer of Hebrews. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11, and this is the last summing we'll have to do because it kind of really speaks to this occasion. And it kind of puts us back in the vicinity of James, too. Hebrews chapter 11. Chapter 11 of Hebrews is called the Hall of Fame of Faith. And uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17 says this about Abraham. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering his only begotten son. It was he whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants will be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, which from also received him back. Later writers will look back at that time, and say there was a confidence. Maybe Abraham didn't fully understand, but he knew one thing. God said that Isaac was going to be his descendant. God, that Isaac was going to be his offspring. And going through Abraham's eye, and I'm going to do what God said, but you know, God can raise him from the dead if he wants to. Now, there's a lot that can be preached about that when we talk about a sacrifice and being raised from the dead, but that's outside the scope of this. But I really want you to capture the life of Abraham and the faith that he was not only speaking, but the faith that he was living. Up until the point where God commanded him probably one of the greatest treasures he ever had, his son. After a hundred years, having a name of Abram, exalted father, and then God changes his name to Abraham, a father of many nations, and not having an offspring. Finally at a hundred, and let's just add a few years, 10, 11, 12 years to, to Isaac's age now, just relishing and look at this promise. And now God says to sacrifice him. I don't understand that. But God said it. God made a promise, God's going to fulfill it. Perhaps I'll sacrifice Isaac, and God will simply raise him from the dead. Now, we know the story. Uh, they go up there, and, and, and even Isaac asks, where's the sacrifice? God's going to provide a sacrifice. And even as he drew the knife back before the angel stopped him, he was prepared to take the life of his own son, knowing good and well that God was still going to fulfill his promise somehow, some way. Was Abraham faithful? Yes, he was faithful. How do we know he was faithful? By observing his life and obedience to God and doing what God called him out to do. Of course, the story goes on. God offered a lamb in the thicket, and they sacrificed that, and they worshiped, and they came back just as he told those who were tending the donkeys that he would do. After this account, now we go back to James. Just flip the page over. I want to read this verse again. Now that we have that, all that behind us, Verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, his faith was complete. Nobody today would say Abraham lived an unfaithful life to God. All of us, if we read the account of Abraham, said Abraham made mistakes along the way. Amen? But his life reflected a faith in God that was validated by his works. Both sides were there. You say you have faith? I'll show you my faith by my works, is what James would say. And that's the call of Scripture. That is the message that James is trying to impart. Simply easy believism, simple belief in God, is wonderful but the devils do that there is something distinct about a true follower of god 
whose true faith in God is revealed by their life. People around them are impacted. They will hear the gospel. They will know that the church will reach out and feed and clothe and care through works, meet needs, share Christ. Faith apart from works is dead. Don't have much time to mention, but it goes on and even talks about Rahab. But, but let me share just a few things where that kind of speaks to me. You have Abraham, God called out. Then you have contrasted with Rahab, the harlot. James doesn't even drop the title here. I imagine if Rahab anything say, could you really, seriously, could you drop the harlot part? I'm a believer now. You know, but no, calls her out, the harlot. You know what that shows me? The depth to which God can save. Because I tell you, even in our culture, gosh, even after preaching the gospel for years, there are still those that would believe, I want to believe. Man, I want to embrace this, but there are some things in my life I have to change. There has some adjustments in my life I must make before I can even come to church and be prepared for my faith journey. That's a lie. That is just a lie. You know, we sing it from years in traditional Baptist song, but it's a great song. Just as I am without one plea. Just as I am. How does God want you? Just as you are. Have you gone too far? No. You were here this morning and you repent of your sin and place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and have a passion and desire to serve him. You're saved. You're saved. And you're in God's hands. And Jesus said, no one can take you out of the Father's hand. If you're here this morning and you've had a lot of religious observances in your life and you can even quote the gospel backwards and forwards, but as you examine your own life, you're like, yeah, you know what? If I was taken to court as a Christian, there may not be enough evidence to even convict me. Nobody's ever heard me say gospel things about God. They've heard maybe cursings. Nobody has seen me at the food kitchen around the corner. Nobody has seen me on the streets in Jacksonville. Nobody's seen me in New York. Nobody's seen me in Ethiopia. If there was a trial, I could not even be convicted as a Christian. Again, friend, I would never say that you're saved or lost, but let me share with you, I am concerned. Because the gospel grips you, and it changes you, and it changes your passions and desires. That's what Jesus does. I just want to conclude with this, if you'll allow me. There's a lot of talk about works that'll validate our faith or that'll substantiate our faith. But what are these works? This is not going to be a limited list. I just want to stay in James. I'm just going to stay in James, what we've talked about so far. And hopefully some of these things will resonate in your heart. Verse 1 and 2, James talks about being joyful when we face various trials. When we go through hard times in life, there may be sadness But within us, there's a joy that says, even if I die here, my hope is in God. It's like Paul, and I remember uh, Mike preached this several weeks ago. It was great. You know, it's hard to beat somebody or to, 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 to depress somebody that's sold out to God. Paul, if you keep preaching this gospel, we're going to throw you in prison. Y'all remember Mike saying that? Brother, I hope it's you. I'm giving you credit for it. Put me in prison, I'll share the gospel with prisoners. All right? We're going to beat you. Hallelujah. To beat me means I identify with the sufferings of my Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul, we're going to kill you. Hallelujah. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. 
That's a gospel that gripped a man. And that's the gospel God desires in us. So are we persevering uh, through trials and tribulations? Are we quick to hear, listen to this, slow to speak and slow to anger? For some of us, that's a work, isn't it? Somebody cut you off in traffic? Hallelujah. Thank you, brother. I'm sure you got an important place to go. I'm praying for you. It's a work. Called out is care for orphans and widows that are in need. That's a work. Those who are helpless, hopeless. What would the church say about that? Something I've gotten really involved in, and I know the Harmons are involved in, is immigrants coming to our country 40 miles from all over the world, just 40 miles down the road, they're coming. What would Christ have the church do? How would he have the church get involved with these who are coming who do not know Christ? Never show favoritism to love your neighbor as yourself. That can be a work, can it? I don't know about your neighborhood. Well, my neighbors are here. I better not say much. No, don't show favoritism and care for those in need that James described here at the very beginning. It is a silly thing to say I have complete faith and trust in Jesus Christ and know that my neighbor is hunger and naked and say be warm and filled. Have a good life. Hope things work out for you. James is calling that out as I would be worried about the faith that you profess and whether that faith is able to save you. This has value if it was the right color and the right size because there's printing on both sides that that is worth one U.S. dollar. This looks good on one side, but that makes it worthless. This is what James is saying. If we say we have faith, but it doesn't manifest itself in the way we live our life in proclaiming the gospel, meeting needs, sharing Christ, there is a problem, okay? That's bad news. The good news, it doesn't have to remain that way. In a few moments, we have what we call an invitation time and it's simply an opportunity to respond to the Word of God. You may be here this morning and said, you know, I bought into this religious thing, but I can truly confess that my heart has never been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. You may have came in that way this morning, but friend, you don't have to leave that way. During this time of invitation, you come up. I would love to share with you. Brother Mike would share. You look around. This somebody that you know that loves the Lord. You find them and say, I want to know this Jesus in a real and passionate way. Not from a religious sense, but from a relational sense. You're here this morning, and you know you've been a Christian, and you're convinced that you're saved, but you know that you haven't been living out your faith. There's a word called repentance. I know it was in our vocabulary for a long time rededication of life. We don't do rededications here. There's no such thing. You just repent of sin. And 1 John 1, 8, 9 says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The altars will be open. If there's any other burden you have this morning you'd like to share and talk with, please come forward. I'd love to talk to you about it. Would you stand as we pray together? Our Father, it's in the name of Jesus we come to you this morning. And uh, God, it, it, it is such a serious matter, such a deep matter. And God, I know, uh, Lord, at times uh, there are here people here I know that are so sensitive to your spirit. Father, who um, even carry a burden, a sense of debt. God, we are overwhelmed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are overwhelmed at the cross of Calvary. Lord, knowing that we are sinners by nature and by choice, 
And Father, because of that sin, we have been separated from you. And Lord, there is no relationship. And God, there, even that, there's nothing we can do to make that right on our own merit, our own right. We can strive to live a better life, but God, we will still find ourselves coming up short and missing the mark. But Romans 5 eight, what a beautiful passage. You demonstrated your love for us and that while we were sinners, you sent Jesus Christ to die for us. God, so many of us here uh, are overwhelmed by that love. And Lord, we can never repay. And God, you have not asked us to repay. You have simply called us to be your witness and to continue the ministry of Jesus Christ. Now, Lord, that's going to flesh it out uh, in many ways among my brothers and sisters here. Some will uh, take to orphan care and meeting uh, the needs of children who have no homes. Some will take to feeding those who are poor and destitute in our community and make sure that they have at least a few meals a week uh, to get by. Lord, there are those that will come one month here on a Saturday and hand out groceries because the need for food is great. And Lord, uh, we are just continuing what we believe is honoring and glorifying to you. Father, we'll continue to go to our neighbors with the gospel. God, will continue to go to the uttermost parts of the world for the gospel because, Father, it's not... Uh, a debt we want to repay. It's a debt that you canceled that we want to honor.